So it's real easy to say I surrender all here in the midst of brothers and sisters, in the midst of great praise and worship. But in the middle of the week when the battle is raging and the evil one would like to tip your wagon over, it's not so easy to surrender, is it? But let that be our prayer this morning in earnest, in sincerity. It may be our prayer on Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday morning and Friday afternoon. I surrender all. I don't know what that means for you today, but it means something for each one of us to surrender all. So some truths are just transcendent. Some truths just rise above all, all other factors, all other circumstances, all other cultures. Some truths stand true indifferent of the generation, indifferent of the era, indifferent, indifferent of the ethnic boundaries. I think that's one of the reasons why the, the endurance of the Bible has, has been so profound over the ages. That's the fact that it's true, stand as true today as when they were written. And they give testimony to the authorship of God himself to the Holy Scriptures. The eternal God inspired the Holy Scriptures, and this is his word. This is his heart. This is his very breath, what we hold in our hands this morning. And I don't know about you, but as we observe human nature, and it doesn't matter where we are, human nature is the same across the globe, across cultures, wealthy, poor, doesn't matter what color we are, our human nature is the same, and the Bible speaks to it. One of those enduring truths has to do with money in our lives. The, the Bible describes those who are desperately poor. It also describes those whom, like I'm thinking about Solomon, has, God has given abundant even awe-inspiring wealth. God describes all circumstances. We're taught in the scriptures what it means to give of our tithes and our offerings, to give back to God like we did this morning in our worship service, to give back to God in, in, in worship to him. Scripture teaches us about the importance of a work ethic, teaches us about the importance of saving and looking to the future, speaks to us of generosity in our attitude towards money and our attitude toward others. Scripture speaks to us in, about leaving a financial legacy for the generations that follow. But Scripture is also clear that money can take over our thoughts. It can consume our motives. It can, it can, it can, it can derail our desires. Money can become a consuming idol standing in the way of our relationship with God. So it's, it's clear to me that money and wealth are amoral. In and of itself, it's, it's neither a blessing nor a curse. It's, it's not a sin. It's not, it's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to be poor. It's, it's neutral. The issue with money is what I do with it in my heart. It's the emphasis that I place on it in my heart. It's the emphasis I place on it in my life, the priority I give to it in my life that is the issue. It's not money or wealth itself. So I ask myself this morning, I ask us this morning, have, have we ever stood back, and, and if you have, when was the last time you did it? Have you ever stood back and looked at the role of money in your life? Let me ask you these questions. Do you, do you have enough? Okay, good. 
Do you find yourself longing for more? Do you know what enough is in your life? How do you define enough in your life? Do you find yourself comparing your accumulation of, of goods, material things, to those around you? Do you, do you have a, a house as nice as theirs? Do you have all the toys that are parked in their backyard? Do you ever think that there might be something wrong with you because you can't afford the toys? Because you can't afford the top shelf education or, or can't afford to provide those opportunities for your kids? Does your longing for money affect the way you view God? Do you see him as gracious, as, as giving, as generous, as supplying your need? Or do you sense a resentment because you don't have the things or the opportunities that others have? Interesting exercise to do sometime is, is to check out one of the online wealth comparisons. We've talked about this before, but let me refresh our memory. Um, I have a couple of slides here. So I, I went online, and you can, you can just plug in your income, and you can see how you compare to other people in the world. At $10,000, if your annual household income is $10,000, you are more wealthy than 84% of the people in the world. You're in the top 16%. If your income is $40,000 a year, you are in the top 99.4% of the world. 0.57%. Um, okay, let's go to the next one. It, it, just, it gets worse. $80,000. You are, you are wealthier than 99.9% .9 of the people in the world. And then if your annual income is $120,000, your, your income is greater than 99.93% of everyone in the world. I, I, I just have to laugh whenever I hear somebody on, on, on the news or somebody ranting and raving about those one percenters. Who are the one percenters? I'm guessing it's most of the people in this room, if not all. But we like to rail against the one percenters because they have all the money and I think that argument just breaks down. The socialists of our day would have us hate the one percenters, but the truth is, in comparison to the rest of the world, most of us are extremely wealthy. Uh, we lived for a time in a country that was significantly poorer than ours. And I can tell you that our financial well-being, our accumulated wealth, has nothing to do with the role of money in our lives. Wealthy or poor, we all confront the decision of the role of money in our lives. So as we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we remember that Jesus is giving his disciples instruction on what it means to live in his kingdom, to walk in his righteousness, his way. What does it mean to be a citizen in his kingdom? And we're seeing, as, this, as the Sermon on the Mount unfolds before us, we're seeing that our life as followers of Christ is radically different than it is for life for the citizens of the world. So it should come as no surprise to us that the topic of money comes up in the Sermon on the Mount because it has everything to do with our heart. It has everything to do with our passion. It has everything to do with our, our commitment to God. 
our view of money is a clear indicator of our commitment to his kingdom as his disciples. So, if you're ready for a little self-examination today, uh, we'll let Jesus teach us about money. Matthew chapter 6, if you would, turn with me there. Matthew chapter 6. Let me read beginning at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is his darkness, how great is the darkness. And in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So to highlight the, the stark contrast between the world and his kingdom, Jesus offers up three choices in this passage. Heavenly or earthly treasures, light or darkness, and God or money. The first choice, heavenly treasure or earthly treasure, is a decision as to where we will invest our heart. Where will you invest your life? Where will your treasure be? So the first idea in verse 20 and verse 19 is do not lay up for yourselves. The first idea here is that of laying up. So what does it mean to lay up something? When I think about this term, I think of the reality shows with the hoarders and what an awful situation. People are just gathering and gathering and gathering so much so that they can't even move through their house anymore because everything is important. Everything has value to them and pretty soon they can't even live in their own house. Hoarders. Researchers say that indecisiveness and severe anxiety, worry, are factors in the issue of hoarding. Okay, that's an extreme example, but that's, that's laying up. To lay up means to store away, means to set aside. Jesus adds that this setting aside is for what? What does the text say? Do not lay up for yourselves. See, he says, when it's, he says it's laying up for yourself, there's a sense of self-centeredness to this idea. I wonder if some of the same issues don't apply to us today. When we lay up, when we invest in these things, when we invest in the future and save up these, in these things, is it a matter of security for us? We don't trust that we'll be taken care of? Is it a matter of security? Is it a provision for the future, for the unknown? Is it a matter of identity for us when we store away, when we lay up for ourselves? Is it a matter of identity? Is it a matter of self-worth? Or is it a matter of acceptance by others? A matter of the world thinking highly of me because I am well off. Why do we lay up for ourselves? Now it's important to note, I want to make this distinction because it's really, really important to clarify that some of these things are encouraged in God's word. We've already mentioned this, but let me say it again. Saving up for the future 
is, a, is considered wisdom. Working hard to provide for yourself and your family is an aspect of godliness. So the issue here is when our resources, our money, becomes our identity. Jesus relates it to our heart. The heart is the seat of our passions. It's, it's where our, our desires live. It's where our motivations well up from. It's where our, our loyalties reside. It's everything that drives our heart comes out, our life comes out of our heart. So if our heart is consumed by material goods, if our, if our heart is consumed by the drive for wealth, the lust for wealth, and the, and the pursuit of them, then our heart cannot be set aside for the things of God. Our heart cannot be dedicated, devoted to his kingdom. You see, the emphasis here, the choice, is on earthly treasures or heavenly treasures. Jesus says that earthly goods are subject to destruction, to decay, to theft. And if you think about what, what, is, what is Jesus saying here, well, okay, everything, everything rusts away. Everything goes away. There's no U-Haul on the hearse is what they say, right? But just think about the culture to understand what Jesus is saying. Where did they store up their wealth? Did they go down to the local bank and put it in a safety deposit box? I don't get any mention of that. <clears throat> maybe, maybe they brought in this, a, a nice big gun safe or something like that and they bolted it to the floor in their basement. I don't think so. So the cultural context of this is that houses were built out of soft stone or even clay and oftentimes people, if you wanted to get into somebody's house, all you had to do was continually auger through the walls, and you're in. You could, if they buried it in the floor, which is what they often did, they buried it in their house someplace. Somebody could get in the house, and they could, they could go dig around, and they could find it. So Jesus said, you can store it up. You can, you can dig a hole in the ground. You can put it, put it in a nice box and bury it, but somebody's going to come and steal it. That's the context. Or if, if somebody doesn't come and steal it, it's buried in the ground, so the worms are going to get it. The reference there is to clothing, of all things. Clothe, the, the design, the fashion of the day didn't change all that much, so fine clothes were often buried in the ground as storage. And they were, they were kept there for not only storage, but to kept, keep somebody from stealing them. And so that's the background, that's the context here. Worms are going to come in and eat it. You can save it all you want. And then rust will come and take it away as well. Corrosion, corruption will take it away. That's the idea. You can't, you can't protect it. Earthly goods rot away. It doesn't take much imagination to transpose that onto our culture and our thoughts today. Cars cost tens of thousands of dollars yet they always give way to rust, at least in our part of the country. They always do. Clothing can cost a small fortune, yet it goes out of style, and you have to wait until you're as old as I am for it to cycle back after 20, 30, 40 years. Styles come and go. Electronics. Oh, our precious electronics. They're a vital part of our life. My status is wound up in what kind of phone I have whether I have a nice iPad. My status is wound, all wound up in that. 
I, I bought a new uh, support for my iPad. I had to buy a new support because the old one didn't fit. I bought a new iPad and it's this much smaller than the other one. Couldn't use it anymore. So I had to buy a, a new support for it. iPads come and go. Your phone that you just spent $1,000 on is going to be yesterday's new is just two years from now. You're not even going to have it paid for yet. Your computer isn't going to run the new software that comes out in five years. Investments grow, and, and hopefully they're there for us tomorrow, but investments can quickly succumb to market realities. There aren't any guarantees at all. Keep your finger in Matthew 6 and look at uh, Luke chapter 12, if you would. I'll start at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over to you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Does it get any more clear than that? Life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. He said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He finally came to his definition of enough. Finally came to it. But God said to him, you fool. By the way, God doesn't take that word lightly. That is a serious accusation. This night, your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, if our heart is in the things of the world, we'll be disappointed at the end of the day. Beyond disappointed, we'll find our soul wanting. Not to mention that none of it will go with us when we die. Just this week, we saw in the news a billionaire that ran into trouble with the law, terrible trouble with the law, and I, I caught this. He was willing to post much of his wealth as bail to keep from going to jail. Huge amount of money to keep from going to, the, to jail. At the end of the day, money can't buy your freedom. Jesus tells us that life in the kingdom means putting our trust, our confidence, and our security in treasures in heaven. Our life as followers of Jesus Christ is to be focused on setting aside treasures that will endure for eternity. So what is it that we're to live for? What kinds of investments will last for eternity? 
And eternity is the key word. We're looking ahead. We're looking to what God has for us in the future, not only today. Today is important, but the future kingdom is also our goal, is, is what we strive for. It's what our faith is focused on. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love remains. Jesus said the, the Jesus model, if you will, is to love God and to love others. Investing in our own life, in our own faith, and our own passion for God is part of it. But if we are to invest in the lives of others with the life of Christ, to give Christ away, to invest in others the gospel, Christ. We are to bring about or seek to bring about the kingdom of God through justice, through peace, through proclamation of the gospel. All of these things are, in, are eternal investments. So as I look around the room today and I consider just our church family, not, the, not even the, the larger body of Christ, but just our church family, I see people investing in the lives of teens. I see people who are teaching our children, teaching the next generation. I see people who are walking alongside others, being, being encouragers, investing in the lives of others. I see people who are showing generosity, who are quick to show generosity. I see people who are seeking to share Christ in any way possible to those who are around them. These are all the reflections of hearts that are seeking the eternal treasure. And money is in submission to that. Money obeys that. That's the proper role of money. Let's go to the next comparison, light or darkness. This next comparison, we need to look at our, we need to look at our concerns. Let me start over. The next comparison we need to look at concerns our vision and whether we live in darkness or light. Let's look at it. Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, go back there. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Somewhere along the way, our life group met last night and we were talking about this very thing. Somewhere along the way, my eyes changed. If you're over 40, your eyes have probably changed too. I think the illustration last night was Chuck Yeager. And he was, he was bummed at 80 years old that he finally had to have readers. Well, I got news for you. I was 38, 40 years old when all of a sudden I went from 20-20 vision. I could see perfectly here or there. And all of a sudden I couldn't read the pages on the word anymore, on the word on the pages anymore. Let alone say it. You see, without the proper lenses, I'm lost. And it's gotten even worse. Now I have bifocals, and now I have, I have correction for distance. I never had that before, so it just gets worse. I've never tried the new technology, new technology. For me, it's new because I've never tried it, a virtual reality. Apparently, it's pretty real when you put on the goggles. I've, I've never seen it, but we've all seen the video clips of people doing crazy things as they, they're in, absorbed in the virtual reality. The virtual reality that we have today is so real 
that scientists, I just read an article this week, scientists today speculate that there will come a day when all of life is lived in virtual reality, that we will be able to define what our reality is. It's all about the eye and what comes in the eye. Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. What we see and perceive is subject to the lenses that we wear. Without, prop, without, without the proper eyes and the proper perception, our world is distorted. So Jesus said this is the, our eyes are the lamp of the body. This idea is kind of confusing for me. I don't know about you, but it's kind of, for one thing, I'm wondering why is that truth in between two passages on money? It seems like Jesus is teaching on money in the first two verses, and then he switches to the eye is the lamp of the body, and then he goes back to money again. It's kind of confusing to me. And then he says the eye is the lamp. We think about the eye taking in light, and he's saying that the eye is actually giving out light. So it's kind of confusing to me. The idea, that idea of the, uh, the light being a lamp and giving off light, is, it might be foreign to us today, but it was a popular conception of the day of Jesus. It said that the eye contains light and it emits it to perceive what's happening around us. Now, I don't know the science behind this, so I might be, I might be all wrong about this, but to me and to I think most of us, we think the eye takes in light. But in their day, they thought it gave out light. That's what Jesus was speaking to. Jesus is saying that if our motivation, our perceptions, our passions are grounded in darkness, we will only see darkness. If the lamp inside of our eyes is dark, that's all we're going to see. Whether the eye takes in light or whether it emits light, the, the principle is the same. The source or the lens of the eye determines what our lives are consumed with. So I've often wondered how this passage fits in with money. The key to understanding this might lie in, in the two phrases, a healthy eye and a bad eye. In the original language, this idea of a healthy eye probably has to do with generosity. A healthy eye is a generous eye. That's more of what the original language would tell us. A healthy eye is one that sees the world around it through the lens of compassion, of giving, of generosity. When, when others are in need, the healthy eye sees it and observes it and responds. In this case, the lens is that of a willingness to give. It's a willingness to live for the good of others. It's a willingness to stand ready to extend compassion in whatever form is called for in the moment. A healthy eye is a generous eye. And by contrast, a bad eye, what would be the contrast of that? A stingy eye. This is how it connects to the financial teaching that Christ is giving to his disciples. A bad eye is a stingy eye. When I think about a stingy eye, I can't help but think of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. And I, I think of him obsessing over his business and obsessing over the gold coins and getting the gold coins out every night and shining them up and, and staring at him like, like he's in love with them. 
And as Ebenezer Scrooge does it, you know the story of the Christmas carol. As he does that, he misses all the relationships that are going around him, going on around him. He misses all the needs that are going on around him. He can't see anything because his eye is stingy. And by contrast, his young employee, Bob Cratchit, lives not for wealth, but he lives for the sake of his family, for the sake of the relationships around him, for the sake of his youngest son, Tiny Tim, who has a health issue. You see, the contrast between stinginess and generosity is just hard to miss in that classic Christmas story. In the story of the rich young ruler found in Matthew 19, Jesus draws attention to this very thing. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? Remember the story? What do I have to do to be saved? And then he goes on to to detail, I've kept all the law. It just makes a list of things. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I've kept it all. You remember what Jesus said to him? Come on, give it all away. Go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. And it... We're missing the, the last half of that command, though. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. Follow me. Nope. And then you will have treasures in heaven. There it is. And I'll say it again. The, the issue is not that he was wealthy. The issue is that it was a, a blockage in his heart. He could not get to God because he, the wealth stood in his way. That's the issue that Jesus is getting out. Our choice is likewise clear. We choose, to, we choose darkness over light, or we choose generosity over stinginess. Those are our choices. And finally, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The final choice is God and money. That's how he closes his argument. We cannot have divided loyalties. It didn't happen very often, but I understand with the, with the idea of slavery in the, in the days of Jesus and in those ancient Middle Eastern days, there were times when a slave would have two masters, but it never worked. Just for the reasons Jesus said, you can't be loyal to one and loyal to the other. You have to choose one. You have to choose a master. So if they did share the labors of a slave, it never worked equally. I once heard the story, apparently it's a, a true occurrence in nature of, the, of a two-headed snake. Apparently a two-headed snake shares a body but has two heads, which is why they would call it a two-headed snake. Two brains, two ideas of how to live. When one head would eat, the other one would eat again. If one drank, it would force the other head underwater. When danger came, it has two ideas on what to do, to run this way or to run that way. The two heads never agreed. So the lifespan of a two-headed snake is limited. You can't serve two masters. Jesus puts it bluntly to us. Your heart cannot long for money and for God at the same time. There can only be room for one on the throne of your heart. So let me ask you these questions as we try to put some application to this. What would be 
what would be the measurements for a heavenly treasure? What are we, what are we looking for? Let me, let me put this out there, and I think, I think um, we could add more to this. And in your, if, in, in your life groups, if you discuss this, I, I'd be curious how you handle these truths. But let me offer up three things. What would be the measurements for a heavenly treasure? The first thing I think is obvious, and that is contentment of the heart. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me start at verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. You see that? Godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's a view that everything we have comes from God. I have nothing to offer. I can't take it with me. That's the role of money. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. What's enough? I, Paul just laid a threshold out there for us, didn't he? He said, if I have food and I have clothing, I'll be content. Everything else is frosting on the cake. Everything else is frosting on the cake. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, O woman of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Treasures of earth or treasures of heaven. If you go back and you look through this passage, I circled the, the problem words. Verse 9, circled desire. There it is again, desires at the end of verse 9. Verse 10, the love of money. Remember, money is neutral. It's the love of money that gets us into problems. He uses the word craving in my ESV translation. It's through this craving that some have wandered away. You see, it's a heart issue. So I ask the question again, contentment, when is enough enough for you? Is it when you do the things that you want to do? Is it when you can afford the house of your dreams? Is it when you can cover your own health insurance? Is it when you can retire in comfort? What is, is it when you can be your own boss? What is it when enough is enough? And Paul says, he sets a, he sets a standard right down in the basement. I have food and I have something to wear. That's enough for me. And the other idea that goes with contentment is my relationship to God. And I ask the question sometimes with my own contentment or lack of, does God owe me something? Does God owe me something? And I think when we start wrestling with this issue of money and wealth in our lives, we just have to ask the question, at the heart of it, do I think God owes me something? Do I think I've been cheated? But he, he did that for that guy. 
that family has, you should see all the stuff they have. God, how come I didn't get it? Does God owe me something? Contentment. The second thing that I would challenge us with today is I think a, a heavenly treasure means a commitment to the kingdom of God. Back to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to talk about the, the following passage next week. Anxiety. He says in that passage, Matthew, Matthew 6, 33, he says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But seek first the kingdom of God. That means generosity. That means the role of money in my life is that I have a generous heart. It means compassion for others. It means that I understand that my resources come from God and are dedicated to God's purposes. So I ask the question, are my, are, are my material goods, is my life available? Is it disposed for what God can use of it? Do I hold my material goods loosely and say, God, I'll be a steward of them today if you desire to take them away, it's okay. If you, if you want somebody to borrow these things, if you want somebody to use them, they're yours. They're yours. Do I hold them loosely? Do I give away money to those in need? I would, I would add a, another idea to this commitment to the kingdom. And that is, does God get the first fruits in my worship? In other words, am I intentional in my giving back to God? Am I intentional about supporting the local church? Am I intentional about supporting God's work wherever it is, wherever he calls me? Am I intentional about it? Or do I give to God and I give to others based on the leftovers? If I have enough leftover, if I paid all the bills, if, if Centerpoint Energy got their cut first and the car payment got its cut first and et cetera, et cetera, and then I give to God whatever is kind of left over, well, I need some more money for, for my golf match this week, and so I'll, I'll, give, I'll give this much. Or do we, do we come to God and say, look, God, I believe that you called me to give first fruits. And I believe it's a tithe. Minimum standard level is 10%. That God asks back. Do I take the top 10% of, of my paycheck? Grosser net? It all comes from God. Do I have a commitment to his kingdom? And am I intentional with giving back to God and recognizing him? And I think you must agree this morning that after his teaching here in Matthew chapter 6, it's all about that very decision. Where is my heart? I think when we, when we purposely, intentionally make the decision to give God the first fruit, we are saying to him, I worship you. I line up my heart, my passions, my desires, everything in my life. I line it up with what you have for me this week.
And the third thing, contentment, commitment, and then calling to the mission. When we're investing in heavenly treasures, we enter into his plan and his purpose for the gospel to be proclaimed and for the nations to hear, which we talked about last week. So we need to do whatever we can to support the work that's going on, not only in our community, but I would, I would underline to the nations, get the gospel out. I'm very proud of Valley Free for our commitment to missions. But we can never take it for granted. We always must be examining our commitment to God's global plan, to his eternal plan. Do you remember last week we talked about the fact that all the nations will gather on that field one day in the, in the valley of Megiddo and they will stand against God. Judgment will come. But at the end of the age, when we all stand in heaven, there will be someone from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. God is at work in the nations. We might not hear it in the news. We might not see it every day. That's why we need missionaries to come. The Thomases are coming on, on um, the last Sunday in September to tell us what's going on in that part of the world. We need those reports because we need to know what God is doing in the world because we need to partner with it. That's investing in heavenly treasures. So there's some self-examination for us this morning. That just, God is really convicting in these matters. Money gets really personal. If you want to know where my heart is, look at my checkbook. That's what they say, and I believe it's true. I, I hope and pray this morning that we align ourselves with what God has for us. The blessing of committing our finances and our resources to his leading. Let's pray as the worship team comes forward. Lord Jesus, this, this teaching peels back layers of our heart that we don't often look at. And um, we can be uncomfortable looking at these things we recognize that we live in a blessed part of the world. We also recognize, Lord Jesus, that you have, whenever you give a blessing, you desire for it to pass through us into the lives of others. So we as individuals, as families, as a church family, Lord Jesus, would you find us faithful to steward the resources that you have and will give to us. May we steward them for your glory. Lord Jesus, may we store up, may we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven by the way we use the money that you've given to us. We dedicate ourselves to, to that purpose for your glory, that your name may, may be made great. In the name of Jesus.